This episode of Cape Up is sponsored by MeUndies. Remember to visit MeUndies.com slash Cape Up to get 20% off the best and softest underwear and socks you'll ever own. Hey everyone, it's Jonathan Capehart and welcome to Cape Up. President Trump has declared the opioid crisis a national public health emergency. He spoke about the damage it's causing the country and families, but he left one thing out. The president was shining a spotlight on this issue, but without any new funds, which usually are focused for such an issue, we worry that it is all bark and no bite. Dr. Susan Blumenthal, a retired rear admiral in the United States Public Health Service and a former deputy surgeon general, talks about the fear that money from other public health emergencies like HIV and AIDS will be used to fulfill the president's wishes and how we got to this point in the first place right now. Dr. Susan Blumenthal, thank you very much for being on the podcast. It's my pleasure to be here, Jonathan. On October 26th, at an event at the White House, President Trump declared the opioid crisis, quote, a national public health emergency under federal law. First, give me your impressions of of what the president had to say. And then second, define for those of us who don't have an ear for federal talk what a, quote, national public health emergency really is. So – The president declared the opioid epidemic in America to be a national public health emergency. Uh, That is a federal uh, statute, a federal law. It's been used, I think there are 28 currently in effect, and it's been used for disasters, for Ebola, for Zika, for a number of other public health issues. The purpose of it is to really give flexibility in terms of um, uh, legal statutes, to mobilize the federal agencies, to bring personnel from the states and federal government to address an issue, and to uh, use various funding streams. And I think that the president was shining a spotlight on this issue, but without any new funds, which usually are... all bark and no bite. So the president needs to, in addition to say this is a national public health emergency, he needs to say, and therefore I'm going to propose that Congress allocate X billions of dollars to help fight this crisis. That's that's correct. I mean, usually the president will say, I propose this amount of money, but he shifted that responsibility to the Congress, suggesting that the Congress should come up with a number. And I think that, again, if you think about the way hurricanes have moved through communities, devastating people's Mm -hmm. lives, devastating economies and communities, I think that there should be a similar sort of response to the way the opioid epidemic is devastating the economies, lives and communities in our country. And that's a good point, because the distinction I'm trying to draw out here is there was a lot of talk about whether the president was going to declare a flat out national emergency. We worry. And what he ended up announcing, which was a national public health emergency. What's the difference between the two? Well, I think the the national emergency is where where you can mobilize the Stafford Act or the Emergency Act. And basically, that does come with a funding stream. 
that has been used, for example, with natural disasters. And, um, like the, Hurricane Irma. Some of the hurricane, yes. And the reason perhaps for not choosing to, de- uh, to declare it as an emergency under this act was that it's also not structured to deal with long-term complicated public health crises. Much of FEMA's funds have been dedicated to hurricanes. Mm-hmm. But I think that people were hoping that it would be, call- be called a national emergency. Under the public health emergency, it expires in 90 days. Um, it's signed by the secretary, but it can be renewed and, and hopefully si- would be renewed. And, and, and signed by the secretary of health, health, and, hu- and, health and human services. Right. So, so then why then should anyone take what the president said in his announcement seriously if he's not going to put the full weight of the Oval Office behind a number and pushing Congress to give him what he wants. Well, I think that that's what we're concerned about. As public health advocates and doctors, we worry that there won't be the funding, that there are a number of promises, but not the funding to to deliver. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can't put a Band-Aid on something like this. And so I think that we're waiting to see whether or not after the commission's report comes out, whether the president will put additional dollars. We hope that there will be a number. But without it, states are suffering. Individuals are dying. I mean, 91 people die every single day from an opioid overdose. The rates have gone up 400 percent since 1999 when these prescription drugs were put on the market and marketed heavily to to doctors and with false science, just like in tobacco. They were uh, said to be non-addicting when, in fact, the science showed that they were very addicting. And those companies have been sued. They paid out, but they've made billions of dollars since that time. You know, and doctors were not educated to really know how addicting they were. And, you know, one of the things the president talked about was we're going to do educational campaigns. We're going to, you know, do more law enforcement. It sounded a lot like the just say no campaign of the Reagan era. Yeah. I mean, I even tweeted out as he when he said it, I just tweeted out. Just say no, because that's exactly what it sounded like. And I think one of the things that education is very important to youth and across the generations, but I think that what was missed here is that this was a pharma-pushed, doctor, you know, healthcare provider-pushed problem. This was patients getting the drugs from their doctors or their nurse practitioner or their dentist. And so, uh, and then they found that they, these were very addicting because the brain has a receptor in which the opioid sticks to, and people get addicted to them pretty easily. Well, I, let's take a step back because weren't these, uh, not what we're now calling opioids, weren't they developed to address actually a very real concern, and that was patient pain, that you know, patients after surgery and things were complaining about about being in pain, and pharma heard heard that this was an issue and a need and did and did something about it. I mean, the, we got these not from a malevolent perspective, but for trying to do something to help patients, no? Well, I mean, I think we were trying to, people were trying to help patients, but this is the story that I understand, is that in 1999, when uh, OxyContin was put onto the market by, by Purdue Pharmaceuticals, they also hired public relations firms to reach out to doctors to create a pain coalition to actually make pain the fifth vital sign and that no patient should experience any pain at all. And, um, And again, with science that said they weren't addicting, quickly 
these medications had a huge uptake. And we saw, you know, a tremendous number of people getting them. In fact, right now in America, there is enough prescriptions for two-thirds of all Americans. And one out of five Americans will be prescribed an opioid. There was a recent study that showed, it looked at 15,000 patient records in Pennsylvania and found that after overdosing, 40% of those patients, even if they overdosed prescription drugs or heroin, they got another opioid prescription. So, and that's le- it, that, that's legal? Yes. Yep. Oh. So I think, again, one of the problems here is lack of real physician appreciation for how lethal these drugs are and how addicting they are and uh, really looking for other alternatives, that we really need to change the paradigm in terms of how we approach pain, that opioids should not be the first line of defense. I mean... Again, it's different when you're a terminal patient, but it's, you know, we should be trying non-addictive uh, drugs and we should be trying other methods of pain control. And so it's not enough to go back to the to the president's remarks and his sort of just say no mantra just to boil it down. Just saying no is not it's not enough. No, I mean, it's it's not enough. Um, this is uh, again, this is when we're talking about the opioid epidemic. We're saying to patients, question if your doctor has given you an opioid prescription. Ask questions. So the individual takes some responsibility, too, as we increase education. But the physician behavior has to change. And why? I think many public health providers believe that when you are licensed in a state, sometimes you have to take CPR training or you have to take uh, a module on, you know, reporting child abuse. Well, there should be a module on pain management. And when you apply for your special license for specific classes of drugs like narcotics from the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, then you should be required to take a module on opioid um, uh, prescriptions. Because if you're going to be prescribing them, you should really know what their addictive potential is and what the alternatives are to their use. And I think we really should do another review because a lot of these drugs were passed for their safety and effectiveness by the FDA before this awareness of the opioid epidemic was there. And I think they should all be re-reviewed and to see, and I know that some are being uh, slated for being removed from the market because of just how highly, their, their high addictive potential. We should also, I think, look at sex differences. You know, my work as head of women's health, the first deputy assistant secretary for women's health, was really to, to focus in on sex differences in the causes treatment and prevention of disease. And one of the things we learned is, you know, that women have different uh, metabolism for, for drugs and that some of the side effects may be different for men and women. And, you know, women were excluded from many of the clinical trials in the past. And so I think we need to go back and look and see whether the prescription amounts should be different for men and women, whether the side effect profile is different. We know that while uh, men get the majority of the prescriptions. There has been a 435% rise in overdose rates for women since 1999 compared to a 235% rise in overdoses for men. So, you know, the Washington Post did a very important series looking at the uh, use of opioids and alcohol and other drugs and found that women had a, when, when they, they had overdoses, they often combined with alcohol or benzodiazepines and they died 
more quickly. And so, I, again, I think it's because the, the alcohol is metabolized differently in women, and sh she has a telescope time frame to liver disease and to respiratory depression as compared to men. So these are important differences that we, we need to look at and uh, and report on. What, what You've mentioned a couple of times now that we should look for alternatives to, yes. to opioids, such as? Well, I think one of the things that the, the president did announce was an $81 million initiative from the National Institutes of Health, the Veterans Administration, and the Department of Defense that was going to research non-addictive alternatives, medications, but also I think we need to look at other kinds of uh, therapeutic interventions, whether it's, it's counseling, whether it's yoga, whether it's physical activity, mindfulness. I mean, there are a number of other ways to manage pain in the long term. And I think developing medications that don't have these addictive potentials, I think, is the way we need, need to go in the 21st century. This episode of Cape Up is sponsored by MeUndies. MeUndies will be the most comfortable pair of underwear you will ever own. With tons of styles and patterns to choose from for both men and ladies, MeUndies will have the perfect fit for any personality. And for a limited time only, check out MeUndies' first ever glow-in-the-dark print, Lights Out. To get 20% off the best and softest underwear and socks you will ever own, free shipping, and a 100% satisfaction guarantee, go to MeUndies.com slash up. That's MeUndies.com slash up. So let's talk about budget. And one thing that I know is of, of concern to you, and that is, the opioid, cri opioid crisis is a big crisis. It is one that the nation is worried about and talking about, and yet the president's announcement doesn't put any money behind it. If you've got this big emergency that must be addressed, where does the money come from to pay for some of the ideas to deal with the opioid crisis? And basically, just to boil it down, who is the federal government going to rob? Which pot of money is the government going to rob to pay for addressing the opioid crisis? Well, I think one of the things that was of great concern was the stipulation in, in the White House announcement that said that the action allows for shifting of resources within HIV AIDS programs to help people eligible for those programs receive substance abuse treatment, which is important given the connection between HIV transmission and substance abuse. Now, if you look at the uh, Public Health Emergency Act, it stipulates that 5% of Part A and B from Ryan White Act can be used for any public health emergency. I'm not sure how that happened, but, you know, we still have an HIV epidemic in America. 1.1 million people are living with HIV in America. Many of them don't know it. Only 40% of people in the United States are on antiretroviral treatment, which can, if you take it as prescribed, can reduce the transmission rates uh, by 96%. So you won't transmit it to other people. But only 30% of people in America are virally suppressed, where they won't transmit it to another person. We also have new discoveries, PrEP, which allows people who are you know, HIV negative to take this medication. And if they're at high risk, if again, taken as prescribed, won't acquire HIV. In, almost all instances. But this is not the time to be taking money, robbing Peter to pay for Paul, to take those monies and give it. To, yes, there is a co-occurrence. About you know 9% of people 
um, who inject drugs may also, uh, you know, get HIV. And so I think that we need to have programs that address both issues, but we should be adding money because we haven't fully addressed the HIV epidemic. And at AMFAR, the Foundation for AIDS Research, you know, we're working hard to find a cure for HIV, but that's something that we hope will, will be in the near future. But we still have a long way to go in terms of making investments and treating and detecting those people living with HIV today. And so you just mentioned a- AMFAR. Talk about your um, what's your your role, your title there at, at, at AMFAR. <laughs> well, I'm I'm their senior uh, policy and medical advisor there, and you know again we just are very concerned about taking dollars, any dollars from HIV and giving it for other purposes. We need to add. You know there was a a very alarming outbreak of uh, HIV in Indiana. I was just about to a- ask you about if there, you think there is there's a, conver- a, car- a convergence well, there here. Well, because, you know, when you're injecting drugs, as people do with opioids, you uh, can also transmit other illnesses. So we've seen, you know, a, we saw a surge of 200 cases in Scott County, Indiana. We haven't seen that since the peak of the HIV epidemic. Also, there's been a huge uh, rise in hepatitis C again, also transmitted in this way. So I think that this is the time to be really adding funding for these problems because they are epidemic in America. I think one place to save money is, you know, for the Department of Health and Human Services to negotiate the prices of drugs. This would save money, save money for hepatitis uh, C. This medication is extremely expensive, uh, tens of thousands of dollars. You know, negotiate prices for all the drugs that we use. We're the only country in the developed world that doesn't negotiate drug prices. And for naloxone, which, again, reverses an opioid overdose, the prices have gone up significantly since we've been shining a spotlight on the epidemic. That's not the right direction. These prices should be negotiated down so that they can be in the homes of people who are at risk, that first responders can carry them. We also need to um, make sure the Good Samaritan laws are passed so that people who um, you know, have seen a, a, an overdose and administer naloxone you know, are not held liable when they save a life. I also want to point out, too, that, you know, there's a lot of data out there about what's happening in communities across the country in terms of how many overdoses there are, how many people are on Medicaid, how many people are getting treatment. And again, AMFAR has put together a big database, and it can be found at uh, opioid.amfar.org. And it's just a wealth of of information uh, about the crisis. But getting back to the issue of, of funding, um, do not mistake talk for action. The funding is needed. And I think it raises the other issue of the Affordable Care Act. You know? you're, you're just reading my <laughs> mind here. Because, I, I mean, you – all of these things are connected. Right. I think a lot of people tend to look at all of these issues, particularly when it comes to health care – as separate and apart. The opioid crisis is separate from HIV, which is separate from hepatitis C, which is separate from all the efforts to repeal the Affordable Care Act, to repeal Obamacare, and yet repealing Obamacare and addressing the opioid crisis and HIV and all these other health care concerns are all gnarled up into the in, into the same pot of issues. Absolutely, Jonathan. You're absolutely correct. I mean, I think that what people don't realize is you can't put, as some of the congressional proposals suggested, a pot of money for opioid treatment alone. I mean, without the Affordable Care Act. Because um, 
about 40% of people who are addicted to opioids also have a mental illness, such as depression or anxiety disorders. A significant proportion have hepatitis C. Um, some will have HIV. Others may get heart infections or respiratory problems as a result of their opioid use. This requires comprehensive health insurance. You treat the addiction, but then you have some other illness. And if you don't have this, the funding to support it, you don't have the insurance to get holistic care, you're going to relapse. And so I, I think that it really underscores the importance. And also in states, three out of 10 people getting addiction services are on Medicaid. And 32 states, including the district, well, the 31 states in the District of Columbia did expand Medicaid, but there were a significant number who didn't. Mm -hmm, particularly in the South. And they're not getting treatment. And again, we see in Appalachia, in New England, in the Midwest, pockets of opioid addiction. Also, HIV. I mean, this, the South is a, a, mm -hmm. the new epicenter for, the, for, for that epidemic and, and, uh, and, H, and HCV as well. So I think the main point here is to underscore we need comprehensive insurance access because these are not issues that can be viewed by themselves but in an integrated way. They, you know, people need access to comprehensive health care. And the Affordable Care Act, you know, before it was passed, I mean, there were 50 million uninsured people. A person was going bankrupt every 30 seconds in America. Businesses were saying they paid more, like Starbucks said, that they paid more for health insurance than they did for coffee. And GM said that they spent more on health care for their employees than they did on steel to make the cars. So, you know, I think that we had a, a, a crisis and the Affordable Care Act uh, really helped to bring the insurance uninsured rate down to, what, about 8%. And it also started a prevention revolution because people don't realize that it's not wasn't just insurance that was provided, which was the cornerstone of the act, but it also created a national strategy for prevention that's chaired by the Surgeon General. It, it created a, a $15 billion prevention and public health fund that provided money to communities for things like treatment services for addiction, for heart disease screenings, for diabetes screenings. And it also created those free preventive services like HIV testing and cholesterol screens, that holistic approach. Because as the father of medicine, Hippocrates, once said, prevention is preferable to cure. And so, yes, we need to do public education campaigns about preventing drug abuse. And yes, we need to educate our doctors. Because when I went to medical school, substance abuse was really not on the radar screen. And for today's medical students, it really is only starting to be as a consequence of the epidemic and the overdoses that have occurred. But it should be part of every medical student's education and residence education and continue through continuing medical education so that people remember that these are huge devastating public health problems, addiction in America. So on the opioid crisis, if you were advising the president and advising, you know, the administration and, and this task force, what dollar amount would you put on a budget to address the opioid crisis? Well, I think I'd say at least $45 billion. I know there's a proposal in the Senate now to do that, and I think that's a, a good start because if you think about, again, the response to the hurricane disasters, I mean, you have to build the infrastructure. You have to strengthen it. We need to have more professionals. We need to have more treatment services, more you know, medically-assisted therapies, but we also need recovery services. You know, just like diabetes, you relapse. Many people, you know, will get medication they'll, or they'll lose weight and do physical activity 
activity, they relapse. We don't get mad at them for relapsing. We understand it's part of the course of the illness. Well, when people relapse with addiction, you know, we think, well, that's their personal responsibility, but it's the course of the illness. And we need, again, I believe we need to better codify best practices for treatment of addiction, teach it to our healthcare providers, have it available on a website so that uh, people know what the best practices are, and do more research if, if, if we don't have it. You know, the Surgeon General, at the request of the Senate, put out a, a Surgeon General's report on addiction in, in America. But I think we need one really that focuses in on opioids uh, more specifically. What does the science tell us? And what does the science tell us about evidence-based treatment? Do, do you think or are you confident that what President um, Trump has proposed in the spotlight that he has shown in this will actually yield, actually yield results? Um, not without funding. Uh, you know, I think that there are, for example, recommendations to for all federal uh, health care providers to do that education about opioids, but it doesn't go into the private sector. I think that we need to create a task force in the private sector as well to provide the advice to the administration. And I think people, it's, it's hitting every community. I mean, this is something that look, mayors, governors, uh, are getting involved with, but the private sector should step up. It's a grand challenge. I mean, 91 people uh, every day. And there's a statistic that I just saw that of men ages 25 to 54, not in the workforce, 44% have used an opioid. So this is, you know, an extraordinary number, and it's it's causing tremendous devastation in communities around the country. So I think that there's a lot that can be done in education, in uh, primary prevention, because again, you don't want people to get addicted. And that means targeting pharmaceutical companies. We're also the only country in the world that since 1997 permits direct-to-consumer advertising. So all those ads you see on TV. There's so many. And you're seeing ads for the complications of opioid abuse. Okay, so, I mean, really, let's take that money for, because for every dollar that pharma is investing in an ad, they're making $4 in profit. There was a Kaiser study that showed something like 38% of people who see one of these ads ask their doctor for it, and about 35% will get them. And so that's driving up healthcare costs too. Let's use that money for a, you know, for educational and treatment initiatives for addiction, for opioids. Let's use it to, rather than educate people to maybe take drugs that they don't need, let's educate them, you know, not to take Uh, these drugs, educate the doctors about the importance of a comprehensive approach to pain that uses uh, non-opioid alternatives. Um, During his his remarks, the president talked very personally uh, and off-prompter about his his older brother who was an alcoholic who died young in his in his early 40s and how his older brother told him don't drink and because there's a big uh, eight year age difference that he listened to his his older brother and just by listening to the way the president talked about that in saying you know just just don't do it and the way he spoke so personally I, I wonder how effective you you think that will be with the American people that the president is not just the president talking about an, an issue and talking about addiction, 
but talking about the role addiction has played in his own life and in his own family. I think that... um personalizing it is is very important. And, you know, alcohol is another drug that is, uh, you know, devastates families as well. And with opioids, often alcohol and, and opioids are used together. I think that personalizing it and telling us that he was affected is, is very important because it creates a, an empathy and a sense of, of understanding. And I hope that the president will take that personal experience and, and move beyond and, and really, again, put the funding in that's needed to help other families. I think he also told us that tobacco, because, uh, you know, he's never smoked and he's never drank. And those are one, two of the top risk factors for disease. If you, if you don't, uh, 470,000 people still die of tobacco every year in America. 18% of our population smoke. It's the number one killer of Americans. So I think uh, there are lessons there. And I think people are coming forward to, to share their stories. I think most Americans know someone either, uh, you know, in their community, in, in their family, in their workplace that's been touched by addiction. And uh, whether it's alcohol, drugs, including opioids. And I think that why it's all the more important for us to now make this a, a public health emergency in our country, and um, which that declaration did. But now let's take all the actions necessary, uh, including putting the, the needed funding and a roadmap in place. What are the actions that are needed across the public and the private sector? Because everyone has a role to play that will um, make these troubling addictions, uh, words that are found only in the history books. Dr. Susan Blumenthal, retired Rear Admiral in the United States Public Health Service, former Assistant Surgeon General, Senior Medical Advisor at AMFAR. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much, Jonathan. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. Hey, guys, it's Allison Michaels, host of the Can He Do That podcast. And we have some exciting news. We'll be hosting a live taping of the podcast at the Warner Theater in Washington, D.C. on November 7th. That's one year after Donald Trump's historic election. That night, we'll talk to legendary reporter Bob Woodward, 2017 Pulitzer Prize winner David Farenthold, and national political correspondent Karen Tumulty about the moments that made you ask, can he do that? Get your tickets at LiveNation.com. See you there. The Washington 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 Post. Post.